And if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open up to 1 Corinthians, the letter of 1 Corinthians. We are continuing our journey through this letter, and we get to chapter 7 today, which is one of the more difficult uh, chapters in, I think, Scripture, and especially in 1 Corinthians, uh, because Paul is addressing issues uh, that are difficult for us to interpret and to know what he's talking about and how this addresses this community and now our community today. So we're going to do our best to navigate uh, this portion of Scripture. We're going to look at the first nine verses together this morning, and it's centered around the blessing, the blessing of marriage and the blessing of singleness. The blessing of marriage and the blessing of singleness. If you have been with us, or if you're new with us this morning, you know that we are working through this big idea through 1 Corinthians, that because Jesus lives, we live for Jesus. Because Jesus is alive, he has backed up who he has claimed to be, that he is a savior for us. He not only makes us right with God, he allows us to be called children of God. We're not just tolerated, we are loved in Christ Jesus. And second, because Jesus lives, we see that he is Lord. Jesus backs up his claims by the resurrection of the dead that he is God in the flesh among us. And we've seen that this should shape how we act and believe. And we've seen this through the first letter of the first Corinthians in three ways. First, we've seen this. Because Jesus lives, we follow him alone. We saw earlier on in the letter that they are, there's division that's happening in the church, but Paul comes in and says that we seek unity in Christ and not division. We follow Christ alone, not Apollos, not Cephas, not any other man, Christ alone. And I have this quote that I think really sums up what Paul has been saying by Michael Reeves. It says this, humility is the only soil in which true unity can grow. Only when Christ is more precious to us than our reputations will we give up our petty rivalries and personal agendas. Only when his glory eclipses all else will we live for his cause and no other. And that's what we seek to be as this church here at Alpine. We seek to be this church that follows Christ alone. But next we see in Paul's letter in Corinthians that we are built in him alone. That we are coming together as the temple of the living God and his presence dwells among us. And lastly, we saw this past week, because Jesus lives, we live for him alone. Last week, We ended this passage that we were bought with a price so that we honor God with our lives in community, meaning that we hold each other accountable for sin, how we treat each other relationally in arguments and lawsuits, and how we honor each other with our bodies. So as we come to this passage in 1 Corinthians 7, this needs to be the framework for us. Paul is not going to be diving off into something new. He's still operating under these assumptions, that because Jesus lives, we live for Jesus, whether it's married or single, and that how we should live going forward. Now, if you've spent any time in 1 Corinthians, uh, especially chapter 7, this passage can be confusing on how we handle it today. It's a difficult passage for us to understand. And I have, I think, four things here 
uh, that are going to help us as we approach this passage as we read it this morning. The first thing is this. Paul is not writing a, a general treatise on marriage. This is not how marriage, this is not the overarching landscape of marriage in Scripture. Paul is coming alongside, and we should take Paul's words alongside of Jesus and the rest of the canon of Scripture. We should not isolate this passage on its own. Second, Paul repeats the question and then responds to the question. If you just read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, just a blanket reading, Paul is going to say, it's good, it is well for a man not to touch a woman. And so you're like, what in the world are you talking about, Paul? Where is this coming from? And so it's important for us to know that Paul is responding to a letter that was written to him. We talked about this in our first sermon series through this letter, that this is really the second or third letter that has been transpired back and forth between the Corinthian church to Paul. And so this is the second letter Paul is responding back to them. Next, we see Paul has a remarkable vision of mutuality in marriage. Uh, there is not an authority grab that we can take place after reading this passage. Uh, Paul's going to say that wives, you have authority over your husband's bodies, and uh, wives, husbands have authority over your bodies. There is a remarkable vision of mutual affection and love that we see in this passage. And then lastly, Paul's advice on marriage and singleness are in view of the day of the Lord. So, as we begin this passage this morning, I want to read for us, starting in chapter 7, verse 1, and we'll read through verse 9, and then we'll dive right into this this morning. It says this, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent, and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and to the widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now what we see in this passage at the very beginning is that the gospel offers a stark contrast to the culture. The gospel offers, the gospel life offers a stark contrast to the culture. Although this letter was written thousands of years ago, we find ourselves in a similar culture that is sex-crazed and driven. Corinth was sexually confused culture. Many people in the church could be branded as new believers in Jesus, and they were trying to figure out how to follow Jesus within this culture around them, where they can have, go and have sexual relations with temple prostitutes, uh, where some Roman soldiers 
had young boys uh, that they would have these sexual relationships with. And now Paul is coming alone into the scene and the gospel saying to flee sexual immorality, to flee it all. And when we look at Paul, we see that Paul is a single man. And so we're seeing Paul write to them to flee sexual immorality. And so you have some of these within the church that are swinging the pendulum to say, well, maybe it's good for me to flee all sexual uh, relationships at all. Maybe it's for us to cease all sexual activity, period. It seems good for a man not to have sexual relationship with his wife and vice versa. Is that right, Paul? And so they ask him this question, and then he responds. But what is primary for us to see is in verse 7, that both marriage and singleness are both good gifts from God. Paul is telling us that your identity is not in your marriage or your family, that your identity is not in your singleness, your identity is not made complete in your sexual fulfillment, but rather, your identity is in Christ Jesus. And everything else is a good gift from him. So whether that be marriage or singleness, they are good gifts from God. Now, I want you to consider how countercultural that was for them, but also how countercultural that is for us. Think about this. We live in a culture that believes for you to be fully yourself, for you to be fully who you are, you must be sexually active. We live in a culture that believes to be fully yourself, you must find your sexual preference in who you are, and this dictates who you are. But here God is saying through Paul, it's actually a good gift to be single and flee sexual immorality. It's actually a good gift to be single and abstain from this type of relationship. Now consider this for us, especially in our culture, where everything is romanticized, especially the pursuit of one that you love and the fulfillment of that relationship. And it would be tempting for us today in our culture to believe that singleness is not a good gift. But here Paul is telling us that singleness is a good gift from God. Now when we read the scriptures... This would be just as shocking to them as it might be for us now to consider singleness being a good gift from God. But let's see how revolutionary of an idea this was by just taking a brief look over biblical history. We see in Genesis 1 that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. How do they do that? How is that done? Genesis 2.24 says that they, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to the wife, his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They multiply. We see in, in Genesis 1, God gives this blessing to man that they are able to participate in creation alongside with God by creating other humans that are made in the image of God. And this is a blessing for them. It is a blessing to be married. It is a blessing to have children. And we see in Genesis 15, the promise of Abraham, that God is going to bless him to restore what has been lost through the curse through Abraham. He tell, God tells Abraham to look at the sky and as many stars as in the heaven, so your offspring will be. But we see 
throughout Scripture that this good blessing from God to be married and have children is not always easy. That throughout Scripture, some of the most intense and painful moments in the Bible revolve around barrenness. And in Scripture, it was a curse almost to be barren. Cursed if you were barren, because your family legacy would stop. It would be seen like Genesis, the blessing is to be fruitful and multiply. So if I'm not able to be fruitful and multiply, this is like a curse on me. Consider Sarah, she's initially barren. Rachel, initially barren. We jump to Ruth. Naomi lost her husband and her sons. Ruth lost her husband and has no children. Children are, in a sense, a retirement plan to look after you in your old age, to continue the fruitfulness of the family. To be single and to be barren was like a curse. Singleness was undesirable. Marriage was a protection in the Old Testament. Singleness included widows, eunuchs, and those with diseases. We see the prophets like Jeremiah, Elijah, Elisha. They're all single. The Old Testament equated the blessing of God with marriage and children. And how does God bless them? Primarily through procreation. Throughout the Bible, we see singleness and barrenness are not seen as good gifts. But here in Paul, in verse 7, Paul is saying that it is a good gift. In Scripture, we see that it's not been a good gift. But now in 1 Corinthians, verse 7, Paul is saying it is a good gift. How? How does that change? I have Isaiah 53, and I think we'll have an insight here. It'll be on the screen. It says this. This is the prophecy uh, of Jesus, that he's coming to die on the cross, of what Jesus is going to do. It says this in Isaiah 53, starting in verse 7. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, and he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, as in his descendants, who considered that he was cut off, cut out of the land of the living? So what the prophet Isaiah is saying here is that this one, this one that's coming, that he has no descendants, he has none coming after him. He's cut off from the land of the living. And Isaiah goes on, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made him his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit found in his mouth, yet it was for the Lord's will to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The Lord shall prosper in his hand. Do you follow what's happening here? Jesus is being cut off from the land of the living without any physical descendants. He's single. He does not have any offspring. But yet, once he's crucified... It says that his offspring he shall see, that they shall prolong his days, and the Lord shall make them prosper in, prosper in his hand. And I want you to pay close attention to this, because this is the gospel. This is the gospel. If you are new to Christianity or thinking it through, the gospel is this, that anyone who trusts in Jesus can be forgiven of all of their sins and become children of God. 
Anyone who trusts in Jesus can be forgiven and they become children of God. Jesus, although he had no offspring, through his death, it brings in new children and a new family of God. It is built up through that. Consider the prophet Isaiah. He continues on in Isaiah 54. He says this, Seeing, O barren one, who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. Consider Isaiah 56. He says, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. In the Old Testament, for your name to be cut off would be not to have any descendants, would not to be have any children. But we see here now through the prophet Isaiah that in your singleness or in your barrenness, that through Christ Jesus, your name lives on because you are a child of the living God and you are his, protected in that. Consider Jesus when he comes onto the scene. How can singleness be seen as a good thing? Uh, I don't believe I have this on the screen, uh, but it's Matthew 19 if you'd like to turn there. Jesus is saying this. If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs, this is not physically talking about eunuchs now, but eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, those who are remaining celibate for the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says, let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. In these verses, Jesus is saying, it is good to be single for the sake of the kingdom of God. And the disciples are shocked at this. It's a difficult saying, because in the Old Testament, God's people multiplied almost exclusively through marriage and children. But now, with Jesus coming through, we see we're not, uh, we're seeing a people unfold of every nation, tribe, and tongue, born not of natural birth, but of new life. People being born again through the Spirit of God, regardless of whether you are single or married. So back to 1 Corinthians 7, how can Paul say that singleness is a good thing? How can Paul say that your singleness is a gift? Because your singleness is not an identity. Your singleness is a gift because God has everything in control. And I think this is what the heart of what Paul is addressing here. And I think this is where it might meet us today, is that Paul is addressing a people who thought, I'd be better off if I were different from what I am. That I'd be better off if I'm, if I'm single, I'd be better off married. Or if I'm married, I'd be better off single. Life would be easier that way. Marriage is hard. It's not what I thought it'd be. So they start looking for caveats. It's better in God's kingdom not to be married, not to touch a woman. We flee from sexual immorality. So they write, Paul, should I be this way? 
People who are single thinking, I can't be who I'm truly supposed to be without being married. I'm not completely fulfilled without a partner or fulfilling some sexual desire. And God, through Paul, is saying, stop. Trust God. Trust God in your marriage, in your singleness. Honor God with your bodies. It has been bought with a price. It is a good gift, whatever season of life you find yourself in, because we know that all things work together for the good of those who love him. So if you're single, your position in being single is not a state to just simply be endured as you wait for something better. Your singleness is not something to be endured until you wait for something better. Your singleness is a good gift from God. You see this, in, in your singleness, you can do a different work for the gospel than those who are married could ever do. Think about your time. You have the ability to be more expendable with your time for your kingdom. Think about your life. Think about your life if you're single. In a culture that believes and pushes on us that sexual expression and freedom and identity is ultimate to who you are, your life is a proclamation that it is not. Hear me, in a culture that pushes that your sexual identity and freedom and expression is ultimate to who you are, your life now in the gospel is a proclamation that it is not, that Jesus is better. Your identity is in him. You are a child of God. You don't have to have some really temporal thing in marriage or a a marriage relationship. We see in the new heavens and the new earth that marriage will no longer be here. Your life is a proclamation that your identity is in Christ alone and Jesus is better. If you're married, don't desire to be single. If you're married, don't desire to be single. I know marriage can be hard but your marriage is a good gift from God. As you commit yourself to one another in sacrificial love, service, honor, gentleness, respect, affection, you display the gospel. You display the gospel. And Paul here is saying to wives and to husbands that your bodies are not your own. We get this command from Paul in Ephesians that we are to love our wives as Christ has loved the church and ultimately Christ laid down his life for the church. Marriage and singleness are both good gifts from God. They're not your identity. So, how should we think about this today? I feel like I have more here Uh, but I'm I'm missing something in my notes. But anyway, we'll continue. Uh, Some things that I want us to think through application-wise because both marriage and singleness are good gifts from God. The first one is this, married or single. We've seen this over the past few weeks. Flee sexual immorality. Don't walk away from, don't consider, don't flirt with, run from it. Run from sexual immorality. Whatever it is that that tempts you, know it, identify it, mark it, and move on. Run from it. Put up safeguards in place. 
Put up walls. Have people that hold you accountable. Run from sexual immorality. First Thessalonians, Paul will say, don't even have the appearance of evil. We are given this idea to flee sexual immorality. Second, Marriage is mutual submission to each other. There isn't a power grab here. These passages in 1 Corinthians 7 have been used um, as abuses in marriage. And this is not meant to go down that track. If we need to talk about that, we can. Uh, But these passages are not meant to put authority over a spouse. That you must do this for me. I have authority, so you do this. Mutual affection and honor and love comes from mutual submission to each other. Second, or third, singleness is a good gift from God. And I want you to hear me say this. I understand this is coming from someone who is not single and has four kids. So it can be difficult for me to say singleness is a good gift from God as someone who's not single and has companionship in a spouse. I'm not someone who isn't working through the pain that can come along with singleness, but don't see me as the authority in this. See Jesus. Jesus who left the splendor and worship of heaven. Jesus, to become man and tempted in every way that we have. Consider Jesus fleeing, running from the temptation of sexual immorality. Consider Jesus as a man who never felt the warm embrace and comfort of his spouse. Scripture says, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. See Jesus. See Jesus now who has never felt or experienced the unconditional commitment of companionship that would never leave his side. One of the things that I hope for in my life, this might sound morbid, (laughs) but that I will live long enough to see Jessica die. That I will be able to hold her hand throughout all of life and walk her to death. That I will be able to be her companion until that day until she sees Jesus. But here's what I know. If I'm not able to do that, I know that Jessica will be by my side, holding my hand, my companion, until then. What a comfort that is. And it can be tempted in our singleness to say, I desire that, I want that. But see, Jesus now is the one who did not have that. He did not have a wife or a companion, and he did not have friends that could even stay awake with him as his hour drew near. He was left totally abandoned and totally alone, facing death so severe that he sweat drops of blood. His anxiety and despair was so great that he cried out to his father, if there's any way that this cup can pass, let it be. And his father was silent. See Jesus totally alone, abandoned in the garden for you. We know this. In our singleness, or in your singleness, Jesus, uh, the, the scriptures say, draw close to the Lord and he will draw close to you. That the Lord gives us his spirit to walk alongside of us in the hardest days of our lives. Now this does not mean 
that is a sin to desire marriage. If you're single, this does not mean that you should just say, well, it's a good gift and I should just, uh, just deal with it and move on even though I desire marriage. No, Paul says in this passage that it's okay to desire marriage and go for it. If you desire it, push towards marriage. But in your singleness, see it also as a way to honor God with your body. And that's our last point here. Honor God with your body. If you're married or married with children, uh, one of the greatest gospel witnesses that you can have, maybe not even that you can have, but maybe that you do have, is to love your spouse well. And I think I have six ways uh, that we can love our spouses well. The first way we do this is with selflessness. Christ came not to serve, but to be served. Uh, no, sorry. Christ came not to be served, but to serve. In the same way with our spouse. We don't look for ways that my spouse can serve me, my spouse can fill my need, my spouse can do what I need them to do in any given moment because I'm the authority, I dictate what happens in the house, and if things don't go my way, it goes bad. No, we serve our spouse with selflessness. We lay down our right for one another in that way. We come not to be served, but to serve. As you interact with your spouse on a daily basis, I encourage you to wake up and throughout the day think, how is it that I can serve my spouse today? How is it that I can show affection and love for them today? The second way is to be actively forgiving. Forgiveness is active. Forgiveness is not a one-time transaction. Deep hurts require constant forgiveness. Deep hurts require constant forgiveness. Maybe you've been married for a long time and there's this deep hurt that's happened maybe a decade ago. And maybe you can have a bad dream or a bad thought and it's just like that wound is fresh all over again. Husbands are wise. What we don't need to do is interact with our spouse and say, well, you forgave me of that 10 years ago. Like, that's in the past. Just please let me off the hook. I mean, for crying out loud. Now, forgiveness is costly. Forgiveness is a transaction. Forgiveness is willing to walk alongside your spouse in mutual affection and understanding. And sometimes that means forgiveness needs to be constant. And that means we need to be actively trying to forgive maybe all the way until the end of our lives. We look towards Christ to offer us that love and that understanding of forgiveness so that we can forgive. But in our frailty, we might need to be offering forgiveness consistently and constantly. Selflessness, forgiveness. Next is with protection. You can honor God through your spouse, by protecting them. We see in Ephesians that Christ lays down his life for his bride. And so many times, like when I read this passage, I think, yes, physically giving up for my, my wife or my children. Like if, say, uh, somebody came in here to assault us all today, I would have no problem stepping in front of my wife or my children to take a bullet, to lay down my life for them. And I'd imagine not many of the husbands, I mean, many of the husbands in here would do the same thing, willingly, easily. But you know what's often harder than that is to lay down my preferences for my spouse. It's to lay down my preferences for my spouse 
uh, in how our home is managed or uh, how I love her. Maybe I want to go do one thing and she wants to do another, but it would be better for my family if I did that thing. I need to lay down my life for them. Next, uh, it sets our priorities straight when we honor God with our buddy. We see in Hebrews that for the joy set before Christ, he endured the cross. For the joy set before us, husbands and wives, we work through our marriages. One day, uh, Paul says in Ephesians that we love our wives in this way like Christ is going to present his bride, radiant, full of splendor, washed clean. So one day... The good gift that God has given me in a bride and children, I'm going to stand before the Lord and give an account for that good gift that he's given me. Have I loved them well? Have I served them well? Have I laid down my life? If you're single, one day you're going to give an account for the good gift that God has given to you in your singleness. Did you manage your time well? Did you serve others well? Did you see and acknowledge and serve the kingdom of God? Next, we see love. We said this earlier, Jesus doesn't tolerate you, he loves you. We honor God with our bodies when we love our spouses well, when we love the church well. And then lastly, how we guard against temptation. And we see this uh, in this passage with Paul, that it's good to separate for a time uh, in sexual relationships with our spouses, but during that time, we are to devote ourselves to prayer. So see this, Paul does not see any aspect of our lives that is not covered and devoted in submission and prayer to the Lord. That even in something that uh, seems, even the insignificant maybe moments of our lives, that we are to devote our minds and our actions and our wills to the heart and tune them to the heart and the mind of Christ Jesus in every aspect of our life. I think Paul, we're going to talk more about this in 1 Corinthians 7, but I think one of the big things that we need to walk away from with this is that whatever season you find yourself in, it's been bought by a price. And you don't have to wonder, like, it'd be better for me to do this or it'd be better for me to do that. Trust God where you are. You can look to Jesus, who trusted God to the point of death on a cross when his father was silent. Like we read this morning, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and he did not open his mouth. See the goodness and the love of Jesus for us. And this is one last nugget that I want, uh, I think this is, you know, especially for me as a parent, because we see this in 1 Corinthians 7, Uh, that marriage or singleness is not ultimate, uh, that our identity in Christ is ultimate. This shapes how we raise our children. This does not mean that I I put this unreasonable expectation on my child that your life is better if you're married and have kids. Maybe the Lord's preparing them to be single. Maybe the Lord's preparing them for the mission field. I do not know. What What we preach as permanent is our identity in Christ and the kingdom that is to come when Christ rules and reigns one day, forever. So as we close this morning, my encouragement is this, that we see our identity so uniquely tied to Christ 
that we are children of God, and that is the blessing. And so whatever comes in our life, we can honor God with our bodies because he is making all things new. Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray um, that you give us wisdom in our lives in how to honor you with our bodies, whether that is in marriage or in singleness, uh, whether uh, that is courting in a relationship that's not yet married, whether that's with children or without. Father, it's really tempting, I know, uh, to see our lives um, as blessed by the things that we receive. So we want to have children, and that will show us that we're blessed. Or we want uh, someone to be married to, and that shows us it's blessed. But Father, remind us uh, that we are blessed and complete in you alone. And Father, that you are making all things new. Jesus, I pray that we stop. Father, that we trust you in the little moments of our lives, the day-to-day moments in all that we do. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.